Um, here's a picture I, I took off the internet. It's a rather gray day outside, so it doesn't actually it doesn't actually look like this. Uh, but this is a picture of Rabbi Joel. What is this that we're looking at on this screen here? That's the castle of Shvetchi. Uh, so the 14th century castle of Shvetchi, which we, we only saw while driving past. But this is the, the countryside, which I guess this must be in the spring, because it didn't look anything like this today. Um, I'm told that the sound is a little problematic. Uh, Ezra, could you please advise uh, if there's any trouble? I'll try to speak up. Um, uh, there's a story by uh, it's 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 a, it's an ancient it's an ancient story. Let me. I'll mute everyone. Okay, I hope that's better. Uh, there's a there's an ancient story. He didn't write it, but Agnon, uh, Shai Agnon, the great, uh, he, he's much beloved here in in Poland, I'm told, uh, because he of course was a Galician Jew living in at one point what was what was part of Poland. Um, he tells the story of how the Jews got to Poland. In fact, the Jews the Jews got to Poland. Uh, probably already in the 10th century. The first record of Jews in Poland is from the is from the 10th century, and organized Jewish communities in Poland really spring up in the wake of the Crusades. At the end of the at the end of the 11th century in Western Europe, uh, Jews are in trouble and they need to find a place to go. So they start moving uh, towards the towards the east and to the northeast, and they get to the borders of what's today what's today modern modern Poland. And there's this legend, there's this legend about Jewish life in Poland which is which says a lot because um, because um, we, I mean, at least I, and I'm sure this is true for many of us that, that grew up in the United States, we think Poland, we think Polish Jewry, and unfortunately the first association for so many of us is Auschwitz, is the Holocaust. And uh, one of the things that I saw on, on Friday in a very, very quick, brief, snowy uh, walk around Warsaw was a, a new museum that's being built, the Museum of, what's it being called, Rabbi? The Museum of Polish Jewish Life. And the community here is particularly proud of, uh, of the fact that it's not going to be a Holocaust museum. Surely the Holocaust will have a place in the museum, but it's about the fact that there was a thousand years of, of Jewish history and Jewish life and Jewish culture in Poland long before anyone had ever heard of, of Hitler and Nazism. Um, and, and that has somehow been brushed away by the fact that our, you know, perhaps naturally so, our first association with uh, with Polish Jewry is to think Holocaust. Uh, so Agnon records this tale. I mean, when, whenever Agnon would record a, a, a folk tale that that pre-existed him, he cast it in his own in his own way. And he tells the following story: The following is our tradition from our fathers and our forefathers who first arrived in Poland. Uh, 
גוזרת גזירה אחר גזירה, עד שלא הייתה להם תקומה לשונאיהם של ישראל. עמדו על דרכים ושאלו לנתיבות עולם, איזה הדרך ילכו בה ומצאו מרגו לנפשם. Where should we go to find rest for our weary souls? נפל פתק מן השמיים לכו לפולין. So a, a note, a פתק, some kind of minor divine inspiration falls from the heaven and says, go to Poland. וילכו ויבואו ארצה פולין ויתנו למלך הר זהב. So the Jews arrive in Poland and they give, they give the, the king a mountain of gold in order that he should allow them to come in. ויקבל אותם המלך בכבוד גדול והשם ריחם עליהם וייתן אותם לרחמים לפני המלך והשרים. The king allowed them in and God caused the king and the people to be merciful to the Jewish people. וייתן להם המלך לשבת בכל ארצות ממלכתו, לזכור את הארץ, לערכו ולרחבה, לעבוד את השם כמשפט דתם. And everything was wonderful. The king allowed them to sit where, to, to dwell wherever they wanted within the kingdom, and to trade and conduct their, 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 their economic affairs throughout the country, and to serve God how they saw fit. And this is actually the case that for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years in Poland, it was a, a paradise of Jewish life. That's how Poland became the center of Jewish life up to the eve of the Holocaust. Surely, time to time, there were problems. Surely, from time to time, There were uh, persecutions, or there were pogroms, or there were other things. But if you look at the totality of a thousand years of, of Jewish history here, it was conditions of unprecedented uh, 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 kindness and beneficence and growth, spiritual growth, uh, 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 economic growth even, uh, although obviously there were there was tremendous poverty uh, uh, throughout, throughout the years, but there was stability of the Jewish communities, and because of that, uh, Poland gave birth to, uh, you know, among the richest, if not the richest, um, uh, not rich not financially, but rich culturally, religiously, spiritually uh, diaspora in, in the history of in the history of the Jews in, in, uh, in the Western world. The king protected them. And we lived here for, I say we, because looking at your last names, I'm guessing that this applies to most of you, although there might be a few exceptions. But all of us probably have All of us probably have, uh, you know, at least on one side of the family, somebody that lived. If I point out the window, if I throw a rock from here, it probably wouldn't be too far from Warsaw, where we were earlier today. Uh, uh, somebody that lives here, uh, someone asks what, what era this is. So it was from, I mean, this, this is a legend. This story here is a legend. It's not a historical record. Uh, it's, a, it's a legend. But... The, again, the Jews, the first Jews arrived in Poland 
the first record of, of Jews traveling through Poland is the 10th century. It's probably some traders that were moving from, it was probably a Sfaradi. Uh, according to what I read, it was somebody named Ibrahim ben, Ibrahim ibn Yaakov, Abraham ben Yaakov, a Sfaradi uh, trader who was probably going further even into Russia to, to purchase uh, uh, furs. Uh, as part of the fur trade. Um, uh, but the first organized Jewish communities uh, follow at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, 11th century, again, when the Jews flee Western Europe during the, during the, um, the no, not the expulsion, the, um, the, uh, the Crusades, rather. Um, I'll skip ahead. Uh, uh, The Jews get to Poland and they see this flourishing forest. On each tree was inscribed, Haruta al was inscribed on each tree a different volume of the Talmud as if the tree is growing up in Poland. And here he's probably echoing an idea uh, from, uh, from the Midrash that in Gan Eden, in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden, in the, in the idyllic world before the sin, before the fall, all of your needs would spring up from the ground. The Gemara describes, the Midrash describes that in Gan Eden, before the curse that man would have to go out and, and earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. So what did he have to do beforehand? So the original plan in Gan Eden is that bread, loaves of bread would spring up from the ground, wholly formed and baked. Clothing would grow on the trees. All of your needs would be provided for. So probably he's riffing off of that idea here in the, uh, in the idea that you get to Poland and it's growing up for you from the ground. The, the Mesechto Tashas, not just that we're going to chop down the trees and turn it into paper and, and on the paper, uh, Bomberg or the Widow's Rome or, or the, the, great, uh, the great printers of, the, of the, the late Middle Ages and early modern period would print Jewish books, but that the, the Gemara itself was springing up from the, from the ground. And not only, not only was this Shifa, we know where it was, it was near Lublin. This must be a place where our forefathers lived, because after all, how else would the Gemaras know to grow on the ground here? Why is the place called Poland, or Poland in English? So why is it called Polin? So the legend, and again, it's clearly only a legend, the legend states that the Jews cried out to God and said, until it's time for the for the exile to come to an end. Until it's time for us to go back to Eretz Yisrael, po lin. Here we will dwell. It's a pun, if, uh, which probably you can only catch in the Hebrew, but polin, right, Poland, right, can be broken down in Hebrew to po, here, lin. We will, we will reside. We will, we will dwell 
at, in the dark night of exile until it's time for us to return to Eretz Yisrael. So that's the legend as recorded about by Agnon about the history of how the Jews got to Poland. Now again, it's a folk tale, but the folk tale, clearly not a historical record, is 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 more important in how it captures how the Jews felt about living here and what this place meant to Jewish life and to and to religious life and to Jewish culture and to Jewish learning throughout almost a thousand years before, of course, it ended so horribly, so terribly uh, in, in, in what overshadows everything that we think of the place. But it's important to unwind our memories of it a bit to recapture what this place meant for, for Jewish life. Agnon also wrote a, a very short story, an incredibly compact short story, uh, which was part of a collection of stories called Sipurei Polin, or Agadot Polin, Stories of Poland. Uh, they're collected in his volume called Elu Ve'elu. Among those stories is a very short story called Maseha Ez, the, the tale of the goat, the fable of the goat, uh, which was first published in 1925. Um, and interestingly, it was simultaneously published in two different collections. It was published in a journal of, of Hebrew letters and Hebrew, uh, Hebrew one of the Hebrew journals that were, that were popular at the time for adults. And it was also simultaneously published in a, um, it was simultaneously published in a, in a, uh, in a children's book. He, here you see a, let me just close this one second. Here you see this is an original illustration from the 1925 uh, edition of the book in the, ch in the children's edition. Um, and, and it's a story which can be read on many different levels. It's a story which can be read as a, as a children's story, and, and it's often done so, in, certainly in Israel, in Israeli ganim, in, in uh, early grades, in, in, uh, in early, in early uh, levels of, uh, of school children read the story. But it can be read as a very profound allegory for the connection between the Jewish people here in Poland and the Galut in general, the diaspora in general, but Poland in specific, and our connection to and feelings for the land of Israel. Um, we don't have time to to read through the whole story in Hebrew, although you, you can and should uh, download it from the site. Here it is in Hebrew. It's, 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 very, it's a very short story. I'm going to read through it really quickly uh, in in uh, English, this is from the edition of uh, this is from the edition of Agnon's Quartet Stories by Toby Press, called A Book That Was Lost: 35 Stories. I'll just uh, I'll just show for myself and uh, mention that this is something of a preview. We're going to be having, in connection with the Agnon House in in Yerushalayim, we're going to be having a series starting on Sunday. On Sunday, um, February 6th, five weeks of classes broadcast live from Agnon's home, doing the kind of textual analysis of Agnon's stories and trying to uncover the sources in, in Jewish sources that he was, that he was drawing on. Um, and you can click on that. Uh, Yoshua asks, was Agnon Polish? Uh, I mean, he was Polish in the sense that he lived in what was then the borders of, 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 uh, of 
Poland in Galicia. He grew up in a town called Buczacz. He was born in 1887, although he always insisted he was born in 1888, in a town, a little town called Buczacz, a little Galician town called Buczacz, which today is in the borders what? Buczacz. Uh, which today is in the borders of the Ukraine. It's in the western Ukraine. Um, but uh, at the time that he lived there, it was controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it was always considered part of part of Poland. So that when Agnon marries his wife, who was from Berlin, his Yekesha father-in-law says, Oy gewalt, a Polish yid. So culturally, the Jews of Buczacz were... Were, were were Polish, and I and I told somebody mentioned to me over Shabbat that many 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 of Agnon's books and stories are translated into Polish. He's he's considered you know something of a uh, something of a of a local uh, a local hero. Um, so here's the story. I'm gonna I'm gonna read through it quickly in English. And we're going to pause to look at some of the mikorot on which he's on which he's drawing. The fable of the goat, which is in Hebrew called Maaseh Haez, Maaseh or Maisa, uh, is is more than a fable or a story. It's a it's a it's a it's a genre of of tale of Hasidic tale, perhaps, um, telling of something remarkable, trying to encapsulate some. Miracle story, uh, but even even the opening of the story, even the opening of the story itself, Maseha is, which in its early in its earliest edition is actually published as Maseha Meara, the story of the cave, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, I am sure that the story is familiar to many of you, but the, the, the cave, which takes takes a large role in the story, but even the beginning of the story, Maseh Zakein Echad Shahayagoneach Milibo. The story of an elderly person who would who would groan. I'm, I'm translating it. I'm giving a free translation here. Uh, the doctor said he should drink goat's milk. So from the very first words, uh, Agnon is echoing off of a Gemara in Baba Kama. That a person should every morning drink warm milk uh, from 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 uh, from the goat. So they bring him a goat and he ties it to the leg of his bed where he where he uh, where he drinks his milk every morning. The Gemara there. The Gemara in Balakame is is actually talking in a halachic context about what kind of animals you're allowed to keep in a, in a town in Eretz Yisrael. Because goats, you know, they go around, they chew up all the grass, they cause a certain amount of damage. And the Gemara, the Mishnah, really is there discussing uh, is discussing the propriety or the permissibility of even keeping a goat and piggybacked to. To that halacha, the Gemara tells the tale of this particular person who kept the goat. So Agnon is riffing off of that, even though, like the story of the origins of the Jews in Polin, this story that we're about to read is not the the, the, the bones of the plot were not created by Agnon. It was a folk tale that appears in many different layers. 
The earliest layers of the folktale go back to the Gemara and the Midrash, both the Bavli and the Yerushalmi have elements of the story. There, there are earlier editions of, or earlier renditions of this folktale um, that exist um, in, in Yiddish, as well as a Taimani version from Yemen, a similar idea. But there are certain, there are certain components of any kind of folktale which are going to, which are going to repeat themselves. So the tale is told, Maseh, the Zakein Echad, it's a kind of way of saying, once upon a time, who groaned from his heart. It's there, it's on the source. Babakama Dastei Omer Aleph. Any of these sources that I'm displaying on the screen, you can, you can save or you can pull off the website. The tale is told of an old man who groaned from his heart. The doctors were sent for and they advised him to drink goat's milk. He went out and bought a she-goat and brought her into his home. Not many days passed before the goat disappeared. They went out to search for her, but did not find her. She was not in the yard, not in the garden, not on the roof of the house of study, and not in the spring, not in the hills, and not in the fields. She tarried several days and then returned by herself. And when she returned, her udder was full of a great deal of milk, the taste of which was as the taste of Gan Eden. Not just once, but many times she disappeared from the house. They would go out in search of her and would not find her until she returned by herself with her udder full of milk that was sweeter than honey and whose taste was the taste of Eden. One time the old man said to his son, My son, I desire to know where she goes and whence she brings this milk, which is sweet to my palate and a balm to my bones. His son said to him, Father, I have a plan. He said to him, What is it? The son got up and brought a length of cord. He tied it to the goat's tail. Now, it's important to note that in Hebrew, this is a perfect example of how shallow it is to read something in translation. Um, uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, the, the son doesn't merely bring a length of cord. He brings, hold on a second, let me find it here in the Hebrew. Here. He doesn't really bring a length of cord to tie to the goat's tail. Amad haben vehevi meshicha. The kashral is navashal ha'ez. The word meshicha is a, is a somewhat rare mishneic term, which means a rope. It means a cord or a rope or a length of, a length of cord. Um, but in choosing this term instead of the more common modern Hebrew chevel or, or any other type of uh, synonym for rope, I, I think it's obvious, and certainly all of the commentaries on this point this out, that he's echoing the term Mashiach, that there's a messianic element. He's, he's signaling to the reader with the choice of this particular term, Mashiach, Messiah, that there's something messianic or redemptive that's about to happen in the story. So the father wants to know how does what where, the goat disappears, comes back with this fantastic milk in its udders. How does that happen? So the son says, "Well, we're going to tie a rope to the. We're going to tie a rope, a rope, a mashiach. We're going to have some kind of redemptive act. We're going to tie it to the tail." His father said to him, "What are you going to do, my son?" He said to him, "I am try, I am tying a cord to the goat's tail." so that when I feel pull on it, I'll know that she's decided to leave, and I can catch the end of the cord and follow her on her way. The old man nodded his head and said to him, My son, if your heart is wise, 
my heart too will rejoice. Now, virtually every other word in the story, if you're reading in the Hebrew, is a quote or a paraphrase or a hint to Pesukim. Very many of them, specifically from Shir Hashirim, as, as, we'll, as we'll now see in even greater intensity. And the work of unpacking every... We, we can't do it here now, but in this, in this short little story, the whole story, in Hebrew, the whole story is 600, is about 650 words. Probably two-thirds of those words are somehow, are somehow resonant with the, the canon of, of Torah literature, either Psukim, and again, primarily a, a, a particular density of Psukim from Shirashirim, uh, Gemarot, Midrashim, uh, Mishlei, etc. They used to tie the cord to the goat's tail and minded it carefully. When the goat set off, he held the cord in his hand and did not let it slacken until the goat was well on her way and he was following her. He was dragged along behind her until he came to a cave. The goat went into the cave and the youth followed her holding the cord. Again, the original edition of this story, the original version of the story is entitled The Fable of the Cave. They walked thus for an hour or two, or maybe even a day or two. The goat wagged her tail and bleated, and the cave came to an end. So, there's something magic going on. He's in the cave. It's not clear. Is he there for an hour? Is he there for two days? Something in the middle. The goat bleats. The goat meh, and the cave comes to an end. In the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, uh, I'll skip that. Okay. When they emerged from the cave, the youth saw lofty mountains and hills full of, the choice, full of the choicest fruits, and a fountain of living waters that flowed down from the mountain, and the wind wafted in all matters of perfume. The goat climbed up a tree by clutching at the ribbed leaves. So, uh, who just who just posted something about this? Oh, Tilalea. Yeah, so, they say, I, I hadn't thought about this. Uh, apparently, goats climb trees. I, I hadn't known that. But if you, if you Google goat in tree, you'll find dozens of pictures and even a few YouTube videos uh, of, that goats climb up into the trues, trees in order to in order to uh, eat the, the carobs or the the fruits or the uh, or the seeds or whatever it is up there in the, in the top of the tree. So so there you go. So the the goat climbs up to the tree, clutching at the rib leaves. Carob fruit, haruv, full of honey, drops from the tree. And she ate of the carobs and drank of the garden's fountain. This, hold on a second. All of these, well, here's, here's this last paragraph. Here's this paragraph in Hebrew. Kevan shiyatsu min ra harim ramim gvoot im primigadim uber maim chayim nuzlim min harim veruach nefikha כל מיני בשמים, והאז עולה באילן, והאילן מלא חרובים לאים דבש, והיא אוכלת מן החרובים ושותה ממעיין גנים. You have different elements here. You have a spring of water, you have a carob tree, you have a cave. All of these, this whole paragraph is, is, is resonant and packed. Again, virtually every half sentence is a quote or a hint or a paraphrase of Psukim in in uh in, in particularly in Shira Shirim.
so the, the, the boy comes out of the cave. The boy comes out of the cave and he calls to the passers-by. Again from Shir Hashirim, right? I, I, uh, I adjure you, I, I, I beg you, I, I require you, good people, to tell me, Hey, where am I? And what is the name of this place? You are in the land of Israel. And you are near to Tzvat, to Safed, to the city of mystics on the hill in the Galil, in the north of Israel. Blessed is the omnipresent Thanks to God who has brought me to the land of Israel. So he understands that this, that this uh, cave is a magic passageway, a kind of, you know, which is also obviously an element in all types of, in all types of uh, stories and all types of, of fairy tales, uh, you know, uh, until Harry Potter, right? In other words, how, how does Harry Potter get to where does he go to? He goes through, there's a magic What's it called? In the train station? I'm not such a I'm not such an expert in Harry Potter, uh, but uh, I'm sure there's somebody right here. Where's Rafael Hoshafat? Are you with us? Rafael Hoshafat, are you with us? So you have a mic on. I'm sure you have expertise in how that works. You have your mic on. Rafael Yehoshaphat is our youngest web yeshiva student. So Harry Potter, he's got one of these magic tunnels that he gets from the train station in London to the magic world that he lives in. Or in Narnia, you go through the uh, you go through the uh, through the wardrobe and you get from one world to another. Alice goes down the rabbit hole. So so he realizes uh, <laughs> uh, so he realizes that uh, that this is a kind of magic passageway. Uh, uh, he kisses the ground and he sits under the tree. Until, until the sun spreads and the shadows flee. This is also from Shira Shirim. Which the Gemara and the Midrash interpret Shirashirim to be describing the period of time until the redemption, until the redemption. Uh, and then what will I do? I'll go home. And I'll bring my father and mother with me back through the cave to Eretz Yisrael. And uh, while he's sitting there, sucking in the holiness of the Holy Land, Shema Cruz, let us go out and greet the Sabbath Queen. And he sees people walking out, wrapped in... Sudarin Levanim, probably in a talit, right? Going out with branches of hadasim. You know, hadasim like we 
like we use for like we use on 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 Sukkot with the Arba Minim with the Lulav, but they were carrying Hadassim with them, going out to greet the Sabbath Queen to to be Makabel Shabbat, because after all we're in the area near Tzfat. There are some people that have written that the story is not just about a magic portal between places, but it's like a time it's a time machine. The story itself in Poland, on the Poland side of the cave, is set probably in the 19th century. And he goes to the cave, and he gets to not only does he get to not only does he get to Tzvat, but he gets to the 16th century, because in the 16th century in Tzvat, the 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 height of the 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 the, uh, the, the birth of the, the modern Kabbalistic uh, movement comes from this area, and among the innovations in uh, in Tzvat at that time. Uh, by the uh, by the Ari and Rabbi Yosef Cairo and their their, their Talmidim uh, Rav Shlomo Al Kabes in particular is the institution of what we call Kabbalat Shabbat, the davening, the tefillah that we say on Friday evening before we get to the davening proper, perhaps highlighted by Lichadodi Likrat Kala Pnei Shabbat Nikabla that we're going out to greet the king. They would actually do. They would go out into the into the fields or into the orchard to greet the onset at, at, at sunset to greet the Sabbath queen as, as she arrives. So the sun realizes that he's gotten to Eretz Yisrael, he's gone through the magic cave, and it's Friday late afternoon, it's time for Shabbat to start. Uh, uh, da, 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 da. And he, he saw men wrapped like angels, wrapped in white shawls, with, just have to turn the page, with with boughs of myrtle in their hand, and all the houses were lit with great many candles. He perceived that the eve of Shabbat would arrive with the darkening, and that he would not be able to return back home to Poland. He uprooted a reed and dipped it in, in gall nuts and ink, from which the, the ink for writing Sefer Torah is made. He took a piece of paper and wrote a letter to his father. Now I'm going to come back to this in a second. Let's just finish the story. From the end of the earth, I lift up my voice in song to tell you that I have come in peace to the land of Israel. Here I sit, close to Tzvat, not in Tzvat, close to Tzvat, the holy city, and I imbibe its sanctity. Do not inquire how I arrived here, but hold on to this cord, which is tied to the goat's tail, the Mishicha, the Mashiach, the Messiah, and follow in the footsteps of the goat. Then your journey will be secure and you'll enter the land of Israel. The youth rolled up the note and placed it in the goat's ear. He said to himself, when she arrives at father's house, father will pat her on the head and she will flick her ears. The note will fall out, the father will pick it up, and read what is written on it. Then he will take up the cord and follow the goat to the land of Israel. Well, the plan doesn't work out exactly the way he had hoped. The goat returned to the old man, but she did not flick her ears, and the note did not fall. When the old man saw that the goat had returned without his son, he clapped his hands to his head and began to cry and weep. My son, my son, where are you, my son? Would that I might die in your stead, my son, my son. I'm going to come back to that again also in a second. So he went weeping and mourning over his son, for he said, An evil beast has devoured him. My son is assuredly rent in pieces. If you're familiar with, with, uh, with, the, with the Humash, even in translation, that sentence should resonate with you. If it does, you can, you can chat it in. What that's, uh, what's that uh, echoing off of? And he refused to be comforted, saying, I will go down to my grave in mourning for my son. 
correct Hillelayet. Well, Yaakov mourning Yosef. And whenever he saw the goat, he would say, Woe to the father who banished his son, and woe to her who drove him from this world. The old man's mind would not be at peace until he sent for the butcher to slaughter the goat. The butcher came and slaughtered the goat. As they were skinning her, the note fell out of her ear. The old man picked up the note and said, My son's handwriting. When he had read all that his son had written, he clapped his hands to his head and said, Oi, oi, woe to the man. Woe to the man who himself of his own, who, who, woe to the man who, who robs himself of his own good fortune. And woe to the man who requires good with evil. He mourned over the goat many days and refused to be comforted, saying, Woe to me, for I could have gone up to the land of Israel in one bound. And now I must suffer out my days in his exile. Since that time, the mouth of the cave has been hidden from the eye, and there's no longer a short way. And that youth, that young man, if he hasn't died, shall bear fruit in his old age. From then, the entrance to the cave is hidden, is blocked. The derech ktsera od ayin. If he hasn't died, if he hasn't expired, then that young man is still bearing fruit in his old age, resonant, of course, of Ms. Moshe Liyama Shabbat, also from the Tabalat Shabbat, full of sap and richness, calm and peaceful in the land of the living. So these psukim, this, this, I'm going to, I'll do it out of order. The, hold on a second. Okay, here we go. The description of Eretz Yisrael when he walks out of the cave is resonant with many different things. Again, I pointed out that the connection to the Kabbalistic practices of Tzvat are, are obvious. But there are a few questions. First of all, if you have a magic cave to go from Poland to someplace else, where you... Rabbi Shudrick, speaking on behalf of the Jews of Poland, if we could give you a magic cave, where would you like it to come out on the other end? Somewhere near Tzvat. No! Yerushalayim, not even Ben-Gurion Airport. But, you, you, I mean, it, it travels magically all that way. It can't get to, it can't get to Yerushalayim. So, I understand the workers were on strike. They couldn't get to Yerushalayim. Uh, I understand you can't get, if you can't get to Yerushalayim, what's number two? If, no, unless you have a particularly Kabbalistic bent, you'd like to get to Fat. I, that I understand. Fat is, is a good second... So you can, if you can get all the way from Poland to Tzvat, why not get to Tzvat? Why get Samuch Tzvat, nearby to Tzvat? And that idea is emphasized a few times in the story. There are actually a few, there are a few, correct, uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman went to Tzvat, and he didn't go to Yerushalayim for all types of reasons. Rabbi Bravander just discussed that last Sunday, didn't you? Uh, in the Tubishvat year. No, he discussed it in, in, in Poland, but in the Tubishvat year online last week, uh, Rabbi Bravander discussed, oh, he didn't discuss that. That's true that Rabbi Nachman, when he came to Eretz Yisrael, he, went, he landed in Haifa and he traveled around and he went to Tzvat and he 
didn't go to Yerushalayim and instead decided to return to 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 to, to Europe. Uh, but for all the reasons that we don't understand anything about Rabbi Nachman's biography, that's one of the great the great mysteries of why if he came all the way he didn't stay, and why if he came didn't he at least stop to visit Yerushalayim. But in a story with mystical connections, I understand you want to go to Tzfat, but the story emphasizes he goes near to Tzfat. Now, a lot of the commentaries on the story completely skip over this, and they assume that near to Tzfat means Tzfat. I don't think so. And there's something in the story, there's, no, it's not Miron, uh, there's something in the story which uh, I believe has been overlooked by everybody that's written on, uh, on, on this story. I can't promise I've seen everything, but I've seen almost everything that's been written been written on this on this very short story, um, like a like a lahavdi, like a Talmudic text, which can take one line of a Mishnah and and unpack it and pack into it and uh, and, and build off of it for many many many. Dapim. This short little story has a body of commentary on it as well. Where is this cave? It's not Meron. I think that this cave is none other than. Reb Shimon Bar Yochai's cave, which is not in Meron, but in Tikiin. The story of Shimon Bar Yochai, the story of Shimon Bar Yochai is reported in the Gemara and Shabbos, uh, uh, just very quickly. Uh, uh, Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Eliezer are, are fleeing the Romans, they're being persecuted by the Romans, they have to hide in a cave. That cave, according to tradition, is in Tikiin. There's a city in uh, the in uh, the Galilee Yon, very near to Tzfat, called Pikiin. Uh, there's a cave there, which, according to tradition, is uh, is the is the cave of Pikiin. Pikiin is a particularly interesting town because there's been an uninterrupted Jewish settlement in and near Pikiin since the times of Bayit Rishon. We were aware that when the Jews came into Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel, with Yehoshua ben Nun. 40 years after the Exodus, 40 years after leaving Egypt, Yoshua ben Nun, Joshua leads them across the Yardin into Eretz Yisrael. From that day on, there has never been a day, never been an hour, never a minute, that there were no Jews in Eretz Yisrael. There have been, of course, many long times when there were very few Jews in Eretz Yisrael. But there's never been a, a moment in, in all those years where there were no Jews in Eretz Yisrael. And the town of Pikiin has a tradition that, uh, that they have had an uninterrupted Jewish settlement from the times of, from the time, at least from the times of Baichai. I just said Baichai Rishon a minute ago. I think I meant to say Baichai uh, And they have a, there's an, an ancient Beit Knesset, which has been refurbished many times in Pikiin, that has stones in it, uh, you know, large, uh, uh, you know, flat, uh, what do you call that, paving stones, which they claim are from Bayit Sheni. So here's a picture of the cave. In the cave, uh, near the cave, there are these carob trees. Yitzchak ben Svi, who was the second president of the state of Israel uh, and was by training a historian, uh, particularly of that time period, uh, wrote uh, a great deal of articles and books about the Jewish settlement in the in the Galil and Pekin. So on the hundred shekel note, uh, just by way of curios here, on the 100 shekel note, which features Yitzhak ben Svi, uh, they have here a picture of the ancient synagogue of Pekin and of the carob tree. Which carob tree is that? The carob tree of the carob tree of Shimon bar Yochai. Which carob tree? So Shimon bar Yochai and his son, they had to go hide in a cave. The Gemara says, Itrachesh Nisa, 
Ivre lohu charuva ve'ena demaya. They have to hide in this cave. So what happens? A miracle occurs. And in the cave, or near the cave, a carob tree blossoms. And the carob is a very nutritious uh, fruit, I guess, and they were able to eat it for a long time. It's the same stuff. And there was a, uh, there was a, a spring in the cave that gave them water. So, Yatsta Batkov Amrats Umimarotechem, they get the message from, from above, it's time to leave the cave. They've been hiding for 12 years from the cave, and it was considered that it was safe for them to come out. Nafku Kol So they come out of the cave, and Rabbi Eliezer would, would burn up anything he saw. After that experience, which again, also according to legend, according to tradition, was where and when the Zohar is written. The, the, again, a cap, this is the second century. So we have a connection both to, to the 16th century, to the spot, but also to the second century, the origins of the Jewish mysticism. They come out and somehow the younger Rabbi Eliezer, the son, is unable to make sense of the world after that experience. And he, he looks around and he starts burning everything up, but Rabbi Shimon the elder, the father, he's able to heal things. Said he to him, my son, you and I are sufficient for the world. On the eve of the Sabbath, before sunset, again, Erev Shabbat, they come out of the cave, it's Erev Shabbat. They see an old man holding two bundles of myrtle, two hadassim, and running at twilight. What are these for, they ask him. Rechvot Shabbat. So what do you get two of them? One for Zachor, one for Shamur. Some people have a custom. We, we actually have this custom in my house. Some people have a custom on Friday night at Kiddush of smelling Bissamim. We have guests come to our house. They see us smell Bissamim Friday night. They think we're kicking them out. They think it's Havdalah. No, there's a, a minag. It's a Hasidish minag. To smell Bissamim on Friday night. And not just any Bissamim, but the Hadassim from the Lulav. Based on this, based on this Gemara said he to his son, see how precious the commandments are to Israel. Thereat their minds were tranquilized. They, they were able to, to live in the, in the world again. After having been in the cave for 12 years, we skipped something in the middle. They're in the cave for 12 years. They come out of the cave for 12. They come out of the cave. It doesn't work out. They have to go back for another year. And this is when they come out of the cave at the end of the, at the, end of the 13th year. So I think there are just too many elements here in, in the story of Elezer and his, uh, the story of Rav Shimbar Yochai and his son Eliezer coming out of a cave in Pekiin, Samuch Litzvat, the story about a father and a son coming out of the cave on Erev Shabbat, the Hadassim, the, um, what? The, the passers-by, the passers-by. Um, there are so many different elements that, that connect the two stories that it seems, it seems to me that Agnon might be trying to make some kind of connection and to say something, and that's what intertextuality, this idea that you can have two texts that are somehow, uh, that are somehow uh, in dialogue with each other, uh, that you can extrapolate from, from one to, to mean something about another, I think that's, I think that's at play here. So what, what's he trying to say? Well, ultimately, both of the stories are stories about about Galut. They're both stories about Galut. Uh, the Maseha'e is literally Galut. It's Poland. It's, 
But even the story of Hashem by Yochai, it's a type of Galut in the sense that they're being persecuted, they're being hidden from the Romans, and even though technically, of course, they're in Eretz Yisrael, but it's a type of exile, being hidden away in the cave for that, that period of time. And coming out on the other side to Shabbat, to mysticism, to the Hadassim, to the passers-by, the carob tree, the, uh, the, 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 um, the spring, I think, is somehow connecting the two stories. Now, the story, the Maseha Ez, is usually interpreted as a statement about Zionism. It's usually interpreted, and Agnon himself admits that any of the stories can be interpreted in a thousand different ways. Um, it's usually interpreted as a story about Zionism about the older generation that can't make the transition, that can't make the voyage through the cave, for whom somehow for whom somehow the, the, the goat has been slaughtered and the cave has been hidden and the opening has been blocked, and the younger generation that can make that jump and, and come through. It's a story about the disconnect between the generations, uh, that they can't communicate anymore. They've been, they've been cut off and written in 1925 by someone who himself who, who had made this move, who had left, who had left Buchach and, and, and left his family behind, and is a theme that resonates throughout so much of, so much of his writing. Um, all of those elements are, are clearly, clearly there as well. But I think there's also this other idea, that coming through the cave, coming through the cave, um, coming out of, of the exile, um, and having to find a way to live in this world, to find a way to make peace with what's going on around you, which Rabbi Eliezer had trouble with, and because of that they needed a little more time cooking in the cave and, and, and learning, learning those lessons. Who knows what it is that they were learning there? I mean, there's a reason that we assume that the Zohar, the great mystical touchstone of, of Jewish life, was composed there at that time in that place. Um, and that they can then come and bring that back out to the world, that that might also be part of what Agnon is saying about the relationship between the two sides of the cave. There's a thousand different things that we can uh, that that can be said. I mean, I'm just going to skip through. If you're interested, you can you can look on the on the Daphne Korot yourself. I skipped over this component of the different resonances in in what the father says. He's both echoing David Hamelech about Absalom, uh, uh, King David mourning his rebellious son. Uh, but he's also echoing he's also echoing Yaakov Avinu about Yosef Hatzadik, and there, of course, it's particularly true. Both Yaakov and the father in the story are mourning for a son who's not really dead. Uh, Right. Both 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 fathers think the son is, has died. Um, the presence of the goat, Taros Taras Bini, all of the cryo states from Lotavia, Sim Stak Stak Bimatnavi, Tabel Al Bino Yamim Rabim, Mori can't be comforted. But in reality, both Yosef and the son in the in, in Agnon's story, both of them are actually alive and well. Now Yosef is alive and well, he's left Eretz Israel and gone to Mitzrayim. The son in the story has left, not Mitzrayim, but Poland, 
and gone to Eretz Yisrael. And both fathers, so there's also something going on here where both, in typical fashion, there's, a, there's an irony at work, but what happens to Yosef? Yosef leaves Eretz Yisrael, but because he's in Mitzrayim, and because of everything that happens to Joseph in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, he's able to save the Jewish people. He's able to save Yaakov and his sons. And the conditions are put into place by which ultimate redemption comes. The Jewish people are, are enslaved only to be, according to the way God had promised Davim Avinu, they'll be taken out and returned and set up shop in, in Israel. And similarly, in Agnon's tale, the son, who the father thinks is dead, has gone off to Eretz Yisrael, which, as Rabbi Bravander was teaching us an hour ago, ultimately proves to be the redemption of, if not, unfortunately, all of Polish Jewry, at least the Sherit HaPleta, those that did survive, and all of the Jewish people all over the world, that the return to Eretz Yisrael became, in our generation, or in our last century, the last 60 years, a salvation for Jewish life, Jewish learning, Jewish culture, religious life, spiritual life, etc., uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar way to Yosef's activities in rescuing the Jewish people at that time. So, so all of these things are playing off against each other. Again, we could we could continue dissecting the story for 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 hours and hours, um, but just to come back to Poland, we are after all here in Poland. Um, it's uh, you know we we want to thank all of you that have been online with us and all of you that are that are uh, that are uh, that are. Um, going to be listening by the audio, and all of you who've been so supportive to make this happen, I hope that hope that we'll, well, I know we'll meet again on Tuesday, but it'll be online when, when I'm teaching from Israel, and you'll be here in this room, but I hope that will, maybe the cave will work, and you'll get to, hopefully to Yushalayim, not just the summer um but I hope that, um, I hope that we'll meet again yeah, if you get to, if you get to pick in, if you come out of the cave up there, we'll pick you up there also. Pinchas will drive you, um, and uh, but I I um, I hope that we'll meet again in in the real world, and I hope that this will be the first of other visits by teachers in the Web Yeshiva to come and see you and to come and learn with you, and I hope that soon you'll be feeling well enough to come and visit us in Yerushalayim and to teach Shurim for us on the on the web. With us from Yushalayim, or from Poland, or from, or from, or from, uh, from wherever. So we'll all take the magic cave to uh, to Eretz uh, Israel. I know that Tehillah has been posting uh, on uh, on uh, online uh, in the chat a number of things about this idea that she has. So please pay attention to her. Uh, but I'm also just going to post uh, a link here which uh, has more information about this visit that we made, webyeshiva.org backslash yomiyun, Y-O-M-I-U-I-Y-U-N, yomiyun, uh, where you can visit. And uh, if you'd like to send your wishes to Joel, uh, I'm sure he appreciates that. And anybody that would like to participate in the, uh, 
in the uh, in the Gashmi side of this Ruhani effort to help underwrite this visit and and helping us uh, provide for some of some of Joel's needs. We know that's appreciated very much very much as well. And thank you all for being with us uh, today. And and to all of Joel's friends, uh, thank you for being with us. Do you want to say a few words? Okay. So signing off, signing off live from Poland. Uh, with thanks again to all of our friends here. We'll see you soon.